Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Dillman. And I'm Stephen Craig. So this last week, we've been working more on the uh, simple, uh, or super simple power supply. Yep. And been uh, basically testing the op amps. Yeah, yeah. So the op amps that we talked about in a previous uh, podcast, we actually made a uh, breakout board mm -hmm. for those. Uh, and actually, it was, uh, I believe it's on page seven of the data sheet. Uh, there's a, there's an example circuit that uh, has both two op amps in in a parallel configuration to increase the uh, the output uh, ca capacity. Yeah. So we we made a small uh, breakout board and that was finished a little bit earlier this week. So we've been uh, spending most of today actually doing uh, testing on that board. Yeah, and we uh, put out a, a blog post about about the testing and the cool thing is uh, that op amp actually came really close or actually matched the simulations you did in Multisim. Yeah, it's kind of a golden situation. <laughs> uh, most of the time when it comes to analog design, you do your simulation and then you breadboard or you, you do a breakout board or you do whatever and you find out that nothing matches up. But <laughs> today, everything just kind of worked exactly like it should, which is it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we, we kind of had to hack the uh, signal input because the uh, we actually don't have a frequency signal generator yet. Shh. Uh, we're getting one, working on it, but you know, uh, we have we have uh, interest, interesting equipment at, at Macrofab. I'll put put it that way. So we actually input the calibration signal from the scope right into the, the board. Well, it works out. Good. Okay, I've dealt with a lot of scopes before that have a one volt output for their calibration wave. The scope that we have has a five volt one kilohertz square wave, which yeah. is perfect. And I was able to put that through a potentiometer and control its amplitude. And right now, I don't need to sweep frequency on it. So yeah. a one kilohertz wave was perfect for what I was doing. Yeah, just making sure that the it, you know the the breakout board worked. Yeah. Um, and we had this. Uh, you had this crazy. I think it was like a two hundred watt resistor. It's the biggest resistor I've ever seen. So yeah, I, I from my own personal shop, I have a an eight ohm two hundred watt resistor. Because I, I work a lot with uh, with audio amplifiers and, and guitar amplifiers, and eight ohms is kind of smack dab in the middle of, of your output impedance on on amplifiers. So when I work on on these amps and I need to turn the volume up, most of the time I don't have a speaker load actually connected to it. I just plug this giant resistor into it, and I can work <laughs> on it without blowing my ears out. And for our power supply. This giant resistor worked well because you could just throw a ton of juice into it and it'll be fine. So. Yeah, we were putting what I think it was like ten watts through it today. Actually, I think we got up to twenty-seven watts. Twenty-seven watts, something, something uh, close to that. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty cool the setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the the thing that's great is it it works as simply as it sounds. It is literally just an op amp that has a ton of output juice. Yeah, uh, you put positive, negative, thirty volts on it, put a signal into it. Uh, the board that we designed had a, a gain of 10, so I put a 1-volt signal into it, and I got 10 volts out. And and it the we initially tested it with with no load other than the just the 1 megahertz or, yeah, or mega-ohm scope input, right. Uh, and, and I took a screen capture of, of what that wave looked like, and of course it's perfect. Yeah, you, know. you don't have any load. <laughs> and, then, and then I put that 8-ohm load on there, so, so we're dumping something like almost point or 700 uh, milliamps yep. through it and the wave is identical yeah uh, it's so, really nice yeah from from an op amp uh, that's yeah. just it's ridiculous yeah it was, it was the uh it was you know no overshoot and 
uh, no jitter on it. So yeah, and no oscillation too. And no oscillation. Which, which, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. The only interesting thing is uh, we don't we didn't have any heat sinks on it, so it got hot pretty quickly. Yeah, they, so so these packages. I was looking at the data sheet, and they have a forty degree C rise per watt in from the junction to ambient. Forty C. Well, when when there's no heat sink. Oh, okay. Yeah, when there's no heat sink, so. Uh, we put 27 <laughs> watts on these things. No so, uh, yeah, it, it was short burst, like one second on, one second off. But it, yeah. but it worked, you know. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. So speaking of cooling on it, we're um, we're looking actually looking at um, how we are going to cool this power supply, and uh, we're either going to use ginormous heat sinks, uh, air cooled, you know, have to force air, or just go with, uh, I think, water cooling it with some. Uh, CPU water cooling for enthusiast computers. Sounds like it would work just fine. Yeah, um, I think it'd be. It's a little more complicated on terms of you. Know, we have to have a pump. We have to have a radiator. We have to have fans. Well, we have to have fans anyways. Yeah. But um, and and the copper block and tubing and water and. But, but I, I think we'll be able to keep the 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 uh, op amps a lot cooler and a lot more efficient that way. Yeah, yeah, and and all said and done, you get a lot more cooling in a much smaller area when you do it that Correct. way. Uh, I don't know if there's an off-the-shelf uh, heatsink that would work for forced air cooling because it would have to be huge. Yeah, it would have to be huge. The dissipate 125 watts, whereas a, a water block the size of you know two inch by two inch can dissipate 125 watts with ease. Right, right. Um, and we actually were looking at um, I can't remember the company. But they had some, basically, uh, they were, uh, I can't remember what they called them, thermal, um, it was those, the, it was the uh, water block that you were looking at, that yeah. actually just has the copper tube with aluminum squished on it. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it right I can't remember the name of the company, we've got the link somewhere. Um, when we find it, we'll put it in the blog, uh, blog post for this. Yeah, they look they look great, it's a, it's a block of, I guess, aluminum. With uh, with a couple turns of copper tubing through it, yeah, looks like it'll do the trick. You can machine right into the aluminum and mount all your stuff directly on there. Yeah, uh, well, with insulating spacers, but yeah, but yeah, no, it looks like it's going to do the trick just well. And 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 honestly, it's not that expensive. No, I think it was about a, I think it was a hundred and fifty bucks for the one we were looking at, which yeah. was uh, it was two inches tall by twelve inches long. Yeah, and I think a half an inch thick. Yeah, because we're talking about having multiple of these op-amp chips on there yeah. uh, and having multiple channels available. So yeah. as soon as you add a channel, you double, yeah, all double your on your op-amps. Yeah, on your op-amps. So uh, having, you know, say up to eight op-amps on there, it'd be awesome if we could cool them all, all on once. one block. And, yeah. and it looks like that might be possible with a block that big. Yeah, and for isolation, we're looking at um, some uh, aluminum oxide blocks. We've used those before, and they're awesome. Too yeah. bad I can't. I can't. Haven't been able to find some beryllium oxide yet. <laughs> but uh, that's a little bit harder to find and a little toxic. But yeah. it's, it's inside an enclosure, and usually not a big deal. Yeah, the the thermal resistance of the aluminum oxide is just it's unreal. Yeah. When, when you when you do your calculations, you almost don't even include it in your calculations. Yeah, it's it's pretty close to what um, anodized aluminum is yeah. straight up. Yeah. And actually, I was looking at anodized aluminum spacers, too. Um, the only problem with those is that you only get 400-volt isolation. Yeah. With, and that would be enough, but 
I'd like to go at least into a couple kilovolt range <laughs> for isolation. Well, the good thing is too with the with the uh, um, ceramic ones, if, if they chip or if something, they don't become conductive. Yeah, they don't. Whereas if the aluminum oxide, uh, not yeah, aluminum oxide ones, um, no, anodized yeah, aluminum yeah, ones, yeah. scratch or chip. They become conductive. Yeah, because you're right. <laughs> it's game over after that. So you can be a little bit more aggressive with the uh, ceramic ones. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So uh, now we got to power the super simple power supply. Yeah. So you have to get power to the op amp. That's yeah. That's so. So the, the op amp does the magic. It it, yeah. it does all the controlling and and all of that jazz. But we still have to give it juice. Yeah. Uh, so. The, the good thing is, I think we can get away with just a pretty stock linear uh, power supply. Linear power it's supply. just going to have to have a monster transformer. Yeah, so we're going to use like a, was it, uh, one of those... Uh, the the toroidals? A donut transformer. Yeah, donut. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've got a source for those. Yeah, it, it, I, found, I found a really great source. The name escapes me at, at the moment, but uh, they have really cheap, they're manufactured here in the States, and they're... Their specifications are just unreal. Yeah. They'll also do custom weld, which we may end up having to go with. But uh, but they have up to multi-thousand watt transformers. Yeah. Uh, so it's... And the good thing is we've got lots of space in the in this enclosure. Yeah. 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 And, well, and, and, and on top of that, Toradals have a lot less leakage magnetic flux. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get a lot less crosstalk. You get a lot less uh, noise build up in the system. It's just it's kind of a win win with those guys. Yeah, um, we're gonna have to have a monster bank of capacitors though. Yeah. Um, well, we do have like I think the chassis is like eight inches tall by nine or nineteen inches, oh, seventeen inches wide because you're inside the rails, mm-hmm. and then I think it's fifteen inches deep. So we got a lot of space for yeah, uh, for basically the toroidal and and, uh, and and all these caps. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So I guess we'll go into what we've been looking at and and saw this week, or or what we called last time was a rapid fire question, which didn't turn into rapid fire. <laughs> we basically spent way longer on it than we usually do. It's more like news. Yeah. Here's some news. So I saw earlier this week this really cool micro USB super cap flashlight. Huh. And uh, the interesting thing about it is it has, I guess I've never really looked into super caps before. Um, it has a 30 farad. I'm like, farad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I knew I knew super caps were in the farad range, but this was, it looked a lot smaller cap wise. Yeah, oh, got an image up here. It, it looks like. It looks like what you would expect, say, a hundred microfarad electrolytic would look like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that electrolytic would be like a couple hundred volts or right. like hundred volts. This is two point seven volts. Right. And uh, and I got the thinking is, you know, thirty farads is a lot of electrons. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. And uh, I wonder how much weight it would gain in electron charge because electrons have. Mass. mass, yeah, they have right, mass, right? Um, and how much weight would you your device gain if it was fully charged? If it was fully charged. If you had thirty farads worth of electrons, electrons. Well, uh, I guess thirty. What, however many coulombs that would be. Yeah. So we actually before the show we actually ran the numbers so we wouldn't bore you. <laughs> <laughs> and so it came out to be um, 
5.685 times 10 to negative 12 kilograms. So that's not a lot. It, that's, that, it feels a little counterintuitive. Yeah. It feels like you should be able to hold this cap, and as it charges up, you feel it get heavier. <laughs> but I guess not. Yeah, electrons, electrons are that small. Yeah, they're that small and that... Um, I wouldn't say that weightless, but they're... They don't... Yeah. They, there's something there, but not much. Yeah, and then we actually said, well, how much would one kilogram of uh, of uh, capacitors or how many how many capacitors, how many capacitors would, you would you need to have one kilogram to actually have something that you can feel in your hand yeah and the total that we calculated out was 176 billion capacitors, <laughs> <How many> capacitors? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a cool exercise but yeah you know what would be interesting is actually figure out um like for the Tesla Motors car, is figure out how much power that battery is and how much it weighs empty and full. Hmm. Because when you fill up your car, you're filling it up with you know eighteen, roughly eighteen gallons of gas. Right. And you know, well, a gallon of water is about ten pounds. I don't. Ish. I don't know if gasoline is less. It's probably less dense. Yeah, gasoline floats on water, so it's less dense. Right. So say eight. Eight. Oh, I, I don't know. Um, where so does it's not a it's not a insignificant amount of weight when you fill up your car. So, so so you're questioning what's the weight difference between powering your car off of electrons versus gasoline? Yeah. So if because technically if your car is low on gas, it's more efficient because it weighs less. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> By such a small amount. <laughs> I mean, it's still like what 100 pounds. But if you know you put you have your car's two thousand pounds and then you put me in there and it's another two thousand pounds, a <laughs> hundred pounds is kind of insignificant. It's like uh, it's like um, you know, all the uh, the like shaving down all the plastic and trying to make cars as light as possible, and then you like have this big, you know. You go and eat like a pound of brisket and a pound of sausage, <laughs> and then eat, a chi- eat chips and a big coke, and you yeah. just like offset all that work those engineers did to make your car lighter. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> ah, okay. And then a research group. I think um, I don't remember the university. Uh, uh, we'll just link it into the blog again. Oh, it's right there. Oh, there it Drexel. is. Drexel University. Um, they came out with this research that showed about carbon films. I guess it's probably kind of close to like graphene. Maybe. Um, they don't mention graphene, so it's probably something some different structure. Um, they give microchips the ability to store electrons like a capacitor. Hmm. And one of the things that they mentioned in their research is this could get rid of bypass or decoupling capacitors in your designs in future chips. Oh, really? Yeah. And so I thought that was really cool because I've been doing a lot of FPGA hardware where you basically sprinkle the entire board with bypass gaps. Um, but they will be they will be much closer, therefore can be smaller, and yeah. they're internal. Yeah, they're built into the chip, so basically all you do is power your chip and you don't even have to have that bypass capacitor next to it anymore yeah yeah i mean if you flip over an fpga board it it looks like it has acne with with a bunch of bypass caps underneath it that would be cool because 
man, putting putting bypass caps under like a 512 pin FPGA is just a giant pain. Yeah, I think that would be um, very interesting if uh, this this research starts coming out and it's. I guess I guess the thing is, it has to be cheaper than. The, well, it's going to cost the manufacturer more to do it. Yeah. Because technically, they can actually already put capacitors in the design. Yeah. By layering silicone down and then metal and then silicone and then metal. They can make a cap that way. It's a pain and it's really tough to get large values. Yeah, large values that I way. I mean, you're talking about the small peak of farads at yeah. best. But if this enables your 0.1 mics to be internal and it's cost effective for the chip manufacturer, I guess this will start to come out. Maybe they'll make an op amp that has you know a couple a couple hundred microfarad on the front on end, the front end? And, and you have a one chip power supply that can do a couple hundred watts just like our SSPS. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a you'll see like the the TO two twenty eleven package with this big growth <laughs> on like the side. A wart. <laughs> a wart. That's the that's the built in capacitor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then earlier this week, um, Obama signed a bill combating counterfeit chips, which we talked about, I think, on episode one. I think that's when we talked about the FCDI gate. I, I, it's only been like two weeks. I don't remember. <laughs> um, and so you know, what, what do you think about that? I guess, um, I mean, they already look for counterfeit chips coming in via um, uh, through customs. So I, I, I actually didn't do too much research into this. <laughs> I just thought, oh, okay, that looks cool. That looks cool. Um, I guess there's really only one thing to say about all this. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> I guess so. Um, we'll see how they implement it and go from there, if it'll actually be successful. Usually the tighter you squeeze pirates and counterfeiters, the, the more they squeeze through your hand. Is that so. a Star Wars quote? That's that's one Leia. The yeah, more I think it is. The more, the more slip, systems slip through your fingers. Your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, I think it was actually today. Um, microchip released a no. It was on Monday. Microchip released a cloud-based IDE environment for um, MP Lab called MP Lab Express. Um, I actually never really used MP Lab too much. Their IDE, I've used their IPE, which is their inter programming interface, whatever it's called. Basically, sure. it talks to the pick kit, and you can just dump straight hex files into your picks. Yeah, it's a, it's a really stripped down programmer. Yeah. Which, by the way, is awesome. Yeah. If you don't have a stripped down programmer for your for your um, whatever tool you use, whatever tool you're using, uh, make one. Because yeah. they're awesome for production environments. Uh, and engineers don't want to click through a whole bunch of stuff. They just want to load it up and say, put my hex in my board. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, uh, oh, yeah, I need to load up this new code. Click. Go get coffee. Yeah. Talk around the water cooler. Go to the bathroom. Come back. Oh, now I'll find the IDEs uploaded. Uh, up, up and running. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of the IDEs, they're fantastic because they, they have all this wonderful features and all this super cool stuff you can do but they just feel super bloated yeah uh hopefully this uh this new pick id will be cool especially with the name express maybe it will be really stripped down or fast yeah i mean it's gotta be fast if it's online 
I, I saw that that pick was doing something, uh, and and I bet you it's in conjunction with all this, where you can do pin definitions and and select all your registers outside of actually writing code. Oh, and it'll generate it out for you. Yeah, it'll just like if you know you need SPI and you need a PWM and you need all this other jazz, you just click the buttons. And it spits it all into your code, and all the registers are already set up, configured, and ready to go. It's kind of funny because it's you know 2016, and it's like, wow, this feels like it should have been done a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, a decade ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's cool, great. You know, they're buying out Atmel and then crushing it all together and making something cool. Yeah, hopefully. Um, what would be interesting is if uh, that that's actually in the future is if 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 uh, either Atmel rolls out their own. You know, AVR Studio Express, or does, or does Microchip roll their stuff into MP Lab? I kind of get the feeling that they're gonna roll it all into one. You would think that'd make the most amount of sense in terms of um, maintaining the the source code for it. Yeah, because I don't know how much they're gonna count out to uh, AVR fanboys. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and just give them their own little like. Well, they'll, they'll always have Arduino. Yeah, well, is it going to be a Pictuino now? Well, the, uh, actually, Microchip had a a fork. Yeah. Of of um, I can't remember what it was called, but they had a fork of the Arduino environment that was set up for Pix. And then I think with the Arduino update that was a couple years ago, that made it easier to add boards and and actual custom stuff. Yeah. Uh, Microchip just basically released stuff that worked with that instead of making their own version. Hmm. Um, actually, I think on the uh, pinball controllers was actually programmed. The original pinball controllers, the pin hex, we programmed in that microchip forked Arduino environment, and it was hell. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It worked, though. I mean, you can't I, fault that. If it works, it works. <laughs> It's just how much of a pain does it take to get it to work. Yeah, I kept going like, we can just use MP Lab and... Yeah. It's like knocking on deaf ears. <laughs> well, I think that will do it for uh, this episode of the MacFab Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Doman. And I'm Stephen Craig. Catch you all next time. Take it easy.